Part 4, Section 4 of The Sinking of the Merrimack by Richmond Pearson Hobson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 4, Prison Life in Santiago and Observations of the Siege. Section 4, containing July 4th, Non-Combatants Leaving. A Bold Request. Exchange at Last. A Lamented Enemy. Goodbyes. A singular cavalcade through the lines back to the flagship monday the fourth of july passed uneventfully but with a deeper meaning as i thought of the work of liberation in which my country was engaged and her mission in the cause of freedom and humanity my notes for the day read fourth of july monday quiet clear seven thirty troops out on palm plain drilling another woman to ask about her son work on palm plain seems to be entrenching small movements of troops rain four forty flag of truce about five ten p m gathering of troops at fuerte heavy smoke two columns in camp to northeast twilight transfer of troops to southard about eleven p m heavy gun firing about 11.45 to 12.30 continued firing at intervals, apparently siege guns and blank charges. I inferred that the flag of truce that went out was connected with a purpose to bombard the place, and when the guns opened about midnight, apparently with blank charges, I concluded that it was a warning for non-combatants to withdraw within a given time. Sure enough, when I looked out at daybreak, a vast train stretched far out across our lines. Nothing ever appealed to me more. When I saw in all its force that cruel side of war, the suffering inflicted on the non-combatants, women, children, old men, invalids, almost all afoot, struggling to take along some needed article. Not until later did I see the other most remarkable of all sights, the feeding of this population by our army, when the conditions for its own food supply were of the most difficult. When in all the history of the world has a besieging army ever before relieved a beleaguered city of its hunger, one of the strongest factors in a siege, taken upon itself in a distant and invaded land the burden of relief. War is harsh and must remain harsh, the writing of wrong will always entail harshness, but we have surely turned a new page in the methods of warfare. An incident occurred in connection with the flight that stirred the very depths of my heart. The sergeant of the guard was married, and instead of receiving his ration cooked, he apparently drew it uncooked, for his wife brought his meals. When she came with his breakfast that morning, he met her in front of my window, and nodding over to those withdrawing, told her it would be well for her to leave without much longer delay, given some directions as to taking care of herself. She looked at him earnestly. The warning guns had shaken the whole city to its foundation. No, said she, I shall come and remain here and die with you. Since the world began, I thought it has always been thus. Man may be devoted, man may have courage, but what are his devotion and courage to the devotion and courage of a woman? My notes for the 5th, 
the last I made read, Daybreak, flight of non-combatants to eastward, vast trains, sergeant's wife wishes to remain and die with husband, soldiers tearing down fences and outhouses, officers' effects being hauled to barracks, squad at Fuerte with Red Cross flag, request for binoculars and to go to places to see the bombardment. The request for binoculars was made in the morning after it became certain from the flight of the non-combatants that bombardment was at hand. From my window the warning guns could not be seen. They sounded as though from the south flank. Up to this time I had seen all our artillery and knew the location of all pieces mounted on the inner works, and I was anxious not to miss any of the bombardment. In the previous fighting it had been very difficult to see the troops with the naked eye, and I had followed their movements principally by ear. It seemed rather a bold request, but I finally decided to make it, and wrote to General Linares asking if he would allow my position to be changed to one commanding the view of the artillery that would make the approaching bombardment, and added a request that he would do me the personal favor to return the binocular glasses which I had surrendered when captured. In the afternoon, Major Earley's, General Inari's chief of staff, came on an official visit to ask on the part of the general if I would not accept compensation for the glasses. I replied by no means that they were a perfectly legitimate capture as part of my military equipment, and that I had ventured the request only as a personal favor. The truth is, continued the major, the general has not been able to get the glasses. I looked surprised. For you remember you were captured by the Navy, and the glasses were taken by the Navy, and the general does not know if they have been lost or not. As to the other part of your request to be allowed to take a position to observe the firing, it will doubtless be settled by negotiations now pending looking to your exchange. I made no remarks, and the conversation turned upon other subjects till he left, saying that he intended to visit my men. His information produced mixed emotions. The thought of exchange was gratifying, and I should be able to tell our general I was in ignorance of the name of the general to whom our operations had been entrusted about the inner works. But was it too late for work with the fleet? My glasses were in the possession of the Navy, I thought, and General Linares does not know whether they have been lost or not. It flashed upon me that the Spanish ships had left the harbor and that the firing on Sunday had been between the fleets. I felt there could be only one result, but was in no wise prepared for the news of the marvelous victory which I received after reaching our lines. As to the glasses, two months later, while we were working on the Teresa, they were found ahead of her bow between the vessel and the shore by the merest accident. I was passing around the bow in a surf-boat on an unusually calm day, and the man at the steering oar saw an object on the bottom in about twelve feet of water. Our curiosity was excited. A diver went down, and I was utterly surprised to find that it was my own excellent new glasses that had been expended from the New York for use in the Merrimack maneuver. As Captain Bustamante was not aboard the Teresa in the fight, it must have been either Admiral Severa or his son who kept them, and discarded them before swimming ashore. It was during this visit of Major Earley's that I learned that Captain Bustamante had been grievously wounded in the groin. 
while gallantly commanding the naval battalion ashore in the battle of the first just before going north on the seventeenth i heard again that he was very low three weeks later i learned from admiral severa at annapolis that he was dead the admiral spoke of him in the tenderest terms and looked out of the window meditatively as if seeing distant scenes with bustamante his voice had a tremor of emotion and i thought i detected the glisten of tears i closed my own teeth hard for a leaden feeling gathered in my chest as when mr ramsden had told me of acosta's death captain bustamante had climbed morro hill three times to see me and had been most kind cordial and considerate i saw in him a fine type of the gallant and accomplished officer and charming gentleman when major earles left i asked for paper and wrote parting letters of acknowledgment to mr ramsden who there was no chance of seeing as he had gone to el caney to general linares general toral and the governor of the barracks and made the few preparations necessary for leaving the major called again next morning to ask whether i preferred a carriage or a horse the latter was my choice saying that we should leave probably in the early afternoon the surgeon came for a perfunctory visit to make sure that i was well the attendant served luncheon the last meal with a face long and glum saying it is terrible in the hospital the faces of all seemed more gloomy than usual i understood afterward that the news of the destruction of the fleet had been passed about i could see the look of hopelessness the feeling of being sacrificed without any possible result the sergeant still looked resolute there was a pair of leggings in my box and i had them on and was ready when major earles came in about one o'clock followed by my men and a guard the men stopped and lined up in the guardroom i came out and greeted them the bright buoyant look of regained freedom was in their eyes major earles asked in a formal way if i was well and was content with the treatment received I replied in the affirmative, and he asked if I would ask the same question of my men. They all answered in the same way. The sergeant brought forward a pack of silk handkerchiefs neatly folded. The major, with words of apology for the necessity, blindfolded me, and the sergeant and the corporal blindfolded the men. The major guided me out of the entrance, giving careful warning of the uneven places, and a soldier guided each man with a guard bringing up the rear. I mounted the horse, after feeling over him a little to make him out, and a soldier led him by the bit. The major and several other officers mounted and led the way, a soldier going ahead with a white flag, and we started off at a slow walk, rather a singular cavalcade. It seemed a little tame, and I was disappointed at being blindfolded, but I kept the bearing and knew just where we were for some time for the handkerchief raised up by my nose permitted me to see straight down, and I had been studying the topography for weeks. As we crossed the trenches, I had a good view of the ingenious way in which they had placed trees, limbs, etc., for barriers, but the most striking feature was the vast abundance of ammunition, all ready for the machine guns, piled up high every five or six yards along the rear bank. After exhausting the supply in their belts, the soldiers had only to turn to an almost inexhaustible supply. We had scarcely gone four hundred yards when we came upon the carcass of a dead horse, 
and a little further on another, and another. Apparently the Spaniards had made no effort to remove or bury even those in the road, while the number was far beyond the capacity of the vast flock of vultures that swarmed on the battlefield. It was an initiation into the gruesome side of battle, as I felt that in the high grass in both directions there were doubtless many unrecovered corpses, each with its particular tale of death agony. We must have proceeded a half-mile or more when the Major said we might remove the handkerchiefs. We were between the lines. Ahead on the ridge were our troops, the tops of the ridges dark with them. We turned out and dismounted while the white flag continued on down the road. We waited some time for its return. It was a fine, wild, rugged country. My heart leaped as I looked over it. The ridge, across the ravine just in front, was steep, and I thought, looking up at our fine fellows almost within hail, that entrenched in that position nothing could dislodge them. The major introduced the other officers, and we chatted. Soldiers held the horses while they grazed. Finally, word was brought that the other party was waiting for us a short distance off. We got under way again, the major and I spurring on ahead. Turning through an opening in the hedge on the side of the wood, there before us, under a majestic saiba tree, stood two American officers with Spanish prisoners, three officers and a group of privates. We passed close at hand the squad that came as escort, magnificent-looking fellows. I saw at once that we had recruited from the very best manhood of the country, and all along, in my subsequent ride, marveled to see men with muskets whose faces spoke indubitably of the higher walks of life. But it was not until my subsequent mission to the front, when privation and hardship were at their worst, that I came to appreciate fully the depth of their patriotism. The two officers, who proved to be Lieutenant Miley and Lieutenant Noble, aides of General Shafter, came forward with a hearty greeting. I introduced them to Major Earles, and some pleasant words were spoken on both sides before the articles of exchange were drawn up, which was done by the official interpreter of General Shafter, under the direction of Lieutenant Miley and Major Earles. The articles were drafted in both Spanish and English, and during their preparation I plied Lieutenant Noble with questions as to the operations that had taken place, and it was only then that I learned of the naval victory of July 3rd and heard that General Shafter was in command of our forces. The two parties made an interesting group under this great saiba tree. Vultures were perched here and there on the branches and sat motionless, seemingly looking with indifference upon this insignificant incident. Sure they're due, whoever should win. What was most striking, however, was the contrast between the Spaniards and the Americans, whether officers or men. There was a wide discrepancy in stature and build, and a still wider difference in looks and general appearance. Three Spanish lieutenants had been brought, and Major Earles was requested to make his choice, which he did, having in effect instructions from General Toral to select a particular one. Lieutenant Miley told me afterward that he had brought all three to give in exchange, but as he found that the Spaniards were disposed to ask for only one, the single exchange was effected. This Spanish lieutenant was wounded in the upper arm or shoulder and had on the same uniform in which he had bled. The men who were to be exchanged seemed much downcast. Apparently there was no vision of a happy return in their minds. 
Doubtless what they had seen of our strength and morale had convinced them that their fight was hopeless. In fact, I was informed that, excepting the one wounded lieutenant who was selected, they preferred to remain with us. It was impossible not to feel sympathy for these men in their dejection. The evidence of meagre fare and hard service were plainly visible on their faces and through their dilapidated clothing, for like all the Spanish rank and file, they wore no underclothing but simply a calico or cotton suit. Their feeling was in great contrast to that of our men, who were on the tip-top of exultation with beaming faces. The articles, when drawn up, were signed by Lieutenant Miley and Major Earles, and goodbyes were said. The arrangement was concluded at about four o'clock, and it was agreed that the truce should end an hour later. An ambulance had come out to take our men, and I now exchanged horses with the Spanish lieutenant. We started up the road, the two lieutenants and myself abreast. Ahead of us a vast throng of soldiers stood in the road and along both sides of it. A band started up a national air. Then, when Johnny comes marching home, and a great hurrah went up such as we had never heard before. Such a welcome! It made our hearts thrill. We saw that we had not been forgotten, and felt as though we owed an apology for ever having entertained such an idea. The generous fellows pressed upon one another to greet us with hearty smiles and kind words. We had scarcely passed through the first press of men when, turning to the right, we stopped and dismounted and started for a little fly tent just under a hill. A white-haired officer came forward with a greeting that could not have been kinder had it been to his own son. It was General Joseph Wheeler. He asked me into his tent, which lay virtually under our trenches, astonishingly simple and unassuming, a small cot to sleep on, and a box, not even a camp stool, to sit on. His son, Joseph Wheeler, Jr., came up to greet me. I had known him as a young artillery lieutenant at Fort Monroe, and was not surprised to find him on his father's staff. I soon found that the younger brother, an undergraduate at the Naval Academy, was on the Columbia off Siboney, and learned also that the general's daughter was there with the sick and wounded. It was a remarkable picture of devotion, one of the most remarkable in history. This general, who with so much gallantry had led Confederate cavalry, was now in the front rank of the Union forces, and with him almost his entire family, all in trying positions and braving the worst hardships. I had felt all the time that there was in the Southern heart nothing but the truest loyalty. The occasion for proof had at last come, the fulfillment of a long-felt desire, and henceforth the fact must be recognized by all parts of the country. We started on, Colonel Astor joining us, and proceeded to General Shafter's headquarters, two or three miles further back, receiving the same hearty welcome all the way. It was indeed touching to see the kindly manifestations of the soldiers during this greeting. Some would have words and expressions, others would ask to shake hands, many would say, I belong to such and such a regiment. As we passed along, Lieutenant Miley told me of the heavy fighting that had been done at El Caney and San Juan, as seen from our side, and pointed out the positions where our losses had been heaviest. The devotion and heroism there displayed came home to me deeply, as I saw a succession of graves along the roadside. Officer after officer, as we passed along, came up to give a hearty handshake. 
Not far on, we met Captain Chadwick and Lieutenant Staunton of the New York on horseback on their way to the front. They gave us, if possible, even greater cordiality of greeting. Captain Chadwick was accompanied by Captain Paget of the British Navy, whose pleasure seemed almost as great as that of our countrymen. We finally reached General Shafter's headquarters and found him seated under a tree. After saluting, I told the general that I had extensive information of the enemy's positions and force, and proceeded to tell him about the inner trenches and their strength on the north and east sides. The Spanish fleet having been disposed of, the increased advantage of taking the city by vessels and in general of advancing from the south and weaker side had become more and more impressed upon me, and I ventured to suggest to General Shafter the advisability of refraining from assault on the stronger side and of advancing from the southern side after the army had reduced the batteries at the entrance so that the mines could be raised and the vessels come in for cooperation. My words, however, seemed to make but little impression on the general, and I concluded that it would be best to urge the matter through the admiral. The ambulance with the men came up just before we left, and I directed them to come out, line up, and salute the general. Lieutenant Miley and Lieutenant Noble remained at headquarters, but Colonel Astor continued with me to Siboney. We rode at some speed to make the landing before dark, and the ride was most delightful. We followed near the base of the mountains. They no longer had the veil of mystery worn at a distance, but their ruggedness was in full view. The tropical vegetation was magnificent, particularly along the streams. After the long confinement, the vigorous riding through this picturesque country under such conditions was exhilarating in the extreme. We arrived at Siboney just before dark. Round in a bluff I saw the sea spread out, animated with transports and vessels of all descriptions. Colonel Astor had dispatches to General Duffield, and I went with him to the General's headquarters. We were scarcely able to make our way because of the press of soldiers who came up with greetings and cheers. Having completed his mission, the colonel was free, and went off with me to the New York. We went in a boat from the Harvard, the midshipman in charge kindly offering its service. The ambulance had not yet arrived, and word had been left that the steam launch would come in for the men. By the time we reached the flagship, darkness had set in, and there was supreme silence on board as the boat pulled alongside. What was my surprise on reaching the deck to find the whole ship's company and all the officers assembled aft. The men covered the superstructure and the bridge and the top of the turret and every conceivable point close by the sea steps, and the officers who were standing on the quarter-deck pressed about me. Three cheers went up and my heart leaped. Everything looked so natural, and the faces were so full of kindness. There was a feeling as of the homecoming of one long absent. To be with them once more was a supreme happiness to me. I inquired for the admiral. They told me he was ill in bed, but had sent word for me to come down to see him in his cabin. As soon as the handshaking was over on deck, and I had introduced Colonel Astor to the officers, I went down to the admiral's cabin where I found him in bed. He gave me the kindest welcome, a welcome that was like the parting in its nature, with few words but those meaning volumes. The Admiral asked in general terms about the incident of the Merrimack, and I told him briefly all there was to say. I reported myself as ready for duty, and spoke of the magnificent conduct of my men, 
their absolute discipline in the face of trying conditions, and their excellent deportment during imprisonment. Without waiting for the question of a written report, I recommended that measures be taken to recognize the men's conduct, and that they be relieved from duty for the present until their strength could be restored. The Admiral replied that this had been attended to, that every man had already been promoted in the highest degree practicable, and that their promotions were waiting to be delivered, adding that the greatest care would be taken of their health, and he added, There is a letter for you. It was an appreciative letter from the Secretary of the Navy. End of the Sinking of the Merrimack by Richmond Pearson Hobson